There was once a very rich man, Jesus began. A man who was dressed in the finest clothes, and a man who, when he sat at his table, ate more than he could fill himself with. But living outside of his gates, there was a man who did not have nearly as much. A man named Lazarus who was poor and sat outside the gates, and his deepest desire was just to be able to sit at the table of the rich man and eat the scraps that fell to the floor. And then, as happens to everyone, Lazarus died, and so did the rich man. And Lazarus was taken to be at the side of Abraham in the presence of God, and the rich man was not. And Jesus says that this rich man cried out from the pit of Hades. In the midst of anguish, he cries out to Abraham, and he says, Abraham, just let Lazarus come and just dip his finger in some water and put it on my tongue so that I can have even just momentary relief from my suffering. And Abraham says, man, that's not how this works. You see, you had your comfort in your life, but Lazarus had none. But now he finds perfect peace and comfort, and all you have is your anguish. And there is a chasm between us, and you can't come here, and we can't go there. And that's just how things are going to be. And then in maybe the first moment of selflessness in this rich man's life, he says, well, listen, I've got, I've got some brothers. I have five brothers, and, and they're living the same life that I was living, and they're not concerned with the things of God either. But if I could just go and warn them, if you would just let me give them a warning. But Abraham says they have what they need. They've got Moses. They've got the law. They've got the prophets. They know everything they need to know, and yet they choose not to follow. The rich man says, but listen, if I could just go, if you just let me out for just a moment and you let me go and talk with my brothers, if they see me coming back from the dead, surely they'll believe. But Abraham says, if they don't listen to Moses and they don't listen to the prophets, then not even the dead coming back to life could convince them otherwise. And in that exact moment, in Jesus' parable here, the rich man learned several things. On one hand, he learned that his riches that he spent all of his life working for, the thing that he had dedicated his body, his mind, and every effort of his life into obtaining, those things that meant so much to him in his life now were completely and totally and utterly worthless. He learned that the life of comfort that he valued so dearly, even though it was his entire life, was certainly not worth the sacrifice of an eternity in anguish. But he also learned that we all are working on borrowed time. And at that moment, that end of the life can come in an instant, and then eternity begins one day for everyone. And we all find ourselves standing before a righteous and holy God. And there are only two avenues to go from there. To follow where Lazarus went, to be in the presence of God with Abraham and the saints, or to find yourself where the rich man found himself. And he learned that when this happens, that there is absolutely no coming back. As we've been looking through the book of Luke, as we've seen Jesus teaching on the kingdom of God and what it means to live in the kingdom of God and how we find our place there, we've seen Jesus teach that he came to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. 
and that he started that through his life and through his ministry and through the work that he was doing in the world, that he brought it into the fullness that we could see and understand, that he gave us access to that through his death and his resurrection. And he's teaching now that he has this plan and this purpose to one day come back and to bring the fullness of the kingdom with him and to drive out every blot and every stain that mars the kingdom of God. And one day he'll finish the work he began. And with that, we're reminded that all of us one day, like Lazarus and like the rich man in Jesus' story, will stand before our king for judgment. We'll stand at eternity's door, and that has an intense gravity to it, and it can feel like a very overwhelming reality when we really stop and think about what that means. So how can we be sure? That when the time comes, that we will find ourselves in the presence of the saints where Lazarus found himself and not with the rich man of Jesus' story. What does it take for broken sinners to stand rightly in the presence of a holy and righteous king? Well, that's what Jesus is going to teach us about today as we look at Luke chapter 12 starting in verse 54, and then we're going to continue into chapter 13 all the way to verse 5. We're going to look here as Jesus stresses to us the importance of repentance and how repentance is at the same time both difficult and incredibly wonderfully easy and offered and open to all. And so we're going to see how repentance is the key to standing righteous to standing rightly, to stand as holy sons and daughters of God in the presence of our King. And so from Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 54, He, Jesus, said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be a scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and he killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, we do thank you for your word, even when it's a heavy word like it is this morning. As we see this hard and difficult teaching of Christ, we also recognize that Underneath what feels so harsh, we find something so incredibly wonderful. 
But God, as we walk through the steps today of what it means to stand rightly before our King, I help you pray that you help us to feel the weight and the gravity of all that this means, God, but also help us to find the release that comes in Christ to know that when we put our faith in Jesus, that even though we should stand before you guilty, you declare us innocent in your presence. And so, God, this morning, help us to see the immense power of the gospel that takes the guilty and makes them innocent, that takes sinners and makes them saints, that takes wanderers and brings them home. And that, God, as we see that, you would teach us to live a life of repentance, to live a life turning away from what keeps us in bondage and walking towards the one who has set us free. And so, Father, we just ask that through your Holy Spirit, you speak through your word, and we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. I find meteorologists to be very impressive people. And I feel like they get a bad rap, especially here in the South, because we have all the snow stuff. And the minute that it looks like snow may come, they go a little crazy and they get a little weird and they're on TV for 12 straight hours and usually they're wrong. And so we're a little hard on meteorologists. But here's a way that you know that they're pretty good at what they do and that what they do is pretty important. The only time that you think about meteorologists, unless you might be married to one or have one in your family, the only time you think about them is when they're wrong. Every other time, they've got your life going pretty smoothly. And it's a pretty incredible gift and talent that they have. Because I can't even use my Weather Channel app and still be able to dress appropriately for whatever season may be coming because I'm always hot or I'm always cold or I get rained on and I don't own a coat and I should own a coat and I don't think about the fact that I don't own a coat until it's 28 degrees and I'm leaving my house to go and pick up my students and I'm just very cold and very cranky. And so the fact that these people can look at this, they have the software and all this amazing stuff that they've created to be able to tell the weather when it's coming and my Weather Channel app can predict the weather somewhat faithfully 15 days in advance, it's a pretty incredible thing. But now think about how it was done throughout history. Before the software, before the satellites and the radars, when people would just have to take the signs all around them, the way the clouds look and the way the wind blows, and I don't know, I assume it was some sort of equivalent to a golfer when they walk outside and just rain. You know, it was just some sort of weird scientific but magical thing that was happening. It's a pretty incredible gift that I do not have. And I'm, I'm thankful to the Lord that I exist in a time when I can open my phone and have a rough idea of what temperature is going to be because if it were up to me to go outside and make a determination for what the next couple of days look like, I would probably either freeze to death or smother in my own heat and die. So I'm glad to live today. But Jesus, in this story, as he begins this teaching, accuses the people around him of being bad meteorologists, at least spiritually speaking. Because it seems like, from a natural standpoint, they've got it covered. He says to these crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be a scorching heat, and it happens. Jesus says, you are incredibly perceptive people about the ebbs and flows of nature. You're able to just feel the wind blow and say, you know what, it's going to be hot for the next few days, and so I better prepare. Meanwhile, Chris is sweating and crying in the corner. You're able to see the clouds and say a shower must be coming, and then a shower comes. Jesus, you are so faithfully in rhythm with the signs of nature. But in verse 56, he says, you hypocrites. 
You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Jesus, weather is a really big deal. And it's a really incredible thing. And your senses have to be very fine-tuned. And you have to be taught to understand how to read the signs of nature. And you become so adept at being able to understand how the world and how climate works. And that is a very difficult thing to do. But now something greater than the weather is coming. Something greater than a storm has arrived. And the signs are so much more clear. In fact... You have the world's greatest spiritual meteorologist standing before you right now. He says, I am in your presence telling you that the kingdom of God has come and everything that you read in the prophets, everything that you heard through the law, everything that you've been anticipating, or at least that you say you've been anticipating, is here and you've missed it. And right with this opening phrase, we have a judgment and a warning, and a wake-up call all mixed into one. Jesus says, you think you're on the right track, but you're not. You think you've been reading these signs the right way, but you're not. You think you have an understanding of what the kingdom is, but you've missed it completely. And I am telling you right now, if you don't open your eyes, if you don't wake up, if you don't pay attention, you're going to miss it. Because he says the present time, as Jesus is standing in the midst of these people, the present time and all of its signs are screaming that the kingdom of God has come. And because of that, their time was running out. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that time is the easiest resource to take for granted. Because we feel like we have a lot of it. My watch, well, this one's not, this one's digital. But if I had an analog face here, it would be a circle. And those things just keep going around and 12 o'clock happens twice a day and it'll happen tomorrow, it'll happen the next day and time feels like it's never going to end and we are very disconnected more often than not from our own mortality and so we believe that time is never going to run out. And we find ourselves much like this crowd standing around Jesus living for a day that might not come. And so they could say, maybe the storm will come tomorrow. Maybe this new wind is going to come tomorrow. Maybe I have tomorrow to be able to figure out what I need to do and to be able to get right before my God. But when we come to this understanding that we do have a very finite amount of time, it does put a little bit of, not pressure, but maybe pressure on how we live and what we do and how we think, especially when it comes to concerning our relationship with a just and holy God. And if we are concerned with being able to stand before God righteous and holy, that process begins with a realization. And that realization is simply that time is short. And much like Lazarus found out in Jesus' story, much like the rich man found out in Jesus' story, one day we'll be all out of time. And that's where it begins. And that's where Jesus starts by saying, time is running out and you need to pay attention. The signs are here. You have everything you need to understand what's going on and to understand how to enter the kingdom. And so don't delay, but you better act now. So he teaches us that time is growing short. And then he begins to teach us more about why that matters. And I don't know a lot about lawyer stuff. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know a lot of lawyers, and so I don't have a great depth on what lawyer things are, but I do and have watched a lot of TV, 
And so most of my information about this comes from lawyer TV stuff, but I'm pretty sure that when you do something wrong, that there is an option for a plea deal, right? That sounds like a thing that's real. And so you can go, and before you go to the court, before you go to the judge, you can make a plea deal and say, yes, I did this, I was wrong. Now maybe you could take it a little easy on me. Or you hear things about people settling out of court if there's a lawsuit. So if you, go to the, if you go to court for it, you're trying to get the maximum money possible in your settlement. But if you settle out of court, maybe you take a little less, but it saves you a lot of fees. It saves you a lot of trouble. And so you're able to take care of these things before it gets to the worst possible outcome. And Jesus gives us a little picture of what that looks like spiritually in verses 57 through 59. He says, And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. And right there, we can make a few observations from just this small section that Jesus is teaching. The first thing that we have to recognize is that there is a right and there is a wrong. Because Jesus says, not only should you be ashamed for not being able to read the signs, he says, you also can't seem to distinguish or judge for yourselves what is right. And so that means that Jesus is teaching us this deeper truth that there is right and there is wrong. And if that's the case, then the next thing that Jesus teaches us must be true as well, that there is a judge. That there is someone who sets the standard and who enforces the standard. And of course we know through Jesus' teaching that that judge is the God who created heaven and earth. Who made all things and all things were created through Christ and for Christ. And so because of that, Jesus sets the standard. Our king sets what is right and what is wrong. And Jesus says, you have everything you need to know. You have everything you need to understand what is right and what is wrong. What pleases God and what does not. And yet you still can't seem to figure it out. And so there's right and there's wrong. There is a just and holy judge who stands over all of this. But Jesus also reminds us here that we all stand accused. That every one of us faces judgment. Right there in verse 58, he says, as you go with your accuser, it's just this assumed thing that we are going with our accuser, that we have to stand trial for what we've done. But then he also reminds us here that we all have an opportunity to settle out of court. Now, Jesus has already made it clear that time is very short, and now we see why that knowledge is so very critical. Because in verse 58, it tells us, he says, make an effort to settle this out of the way, lest he drag you to the judge. And listen to what happens when you approach the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison. It seems as though there's only one way for this to go if our trial goes to court. There's no standing before the judge and trying to convince him that we're innocent. There's no bringing evidence to the table. Everything that the judge needs to know about us, he knows. And so if our trial makes it to court, then we recognize that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Then we recognize these truths of Scripture that there is no one good, no one righteous, no one who seeks after God. And we will become very aware of the fact that the Bible teaches us that the wages of sin is death. And I've already mentioned that this is a very difficult passage. This is a very difficult teaching that Christ offers up. And to me, maybe one of the most difficult things is in verse 57, just three simple letters, the word you. And as Jesus makes this declaration of the you, that is a very big you. 
That's all the crowd that's standing there before him. That's all of us that are reading this passage today. That's every man, woman, and child that's ever been born. Jesus is painting with a broad brush here saying that all of you, all of you don't know how to judge for yourself what is right, and all of you are standing accused and are guilty in the presence of a holy God. John puts it this way, saying that if we claim that we have no sin, then we are liars, that there is no truth within us. Jesus is telling us here that not only do we stand accused, but we stand guilty as charged. And there is nothing we can do, as we're going to see in just a, mo- in a moment, on our own to make this right apart from him. But this is why confession is so crucial. This is why every single week before our confession of sin, Drew describes why we do this. And I love this quote from Brendan Manning. And I know we've used it before, confession of sin before. Brennan said, at Sunday worship, as in every dimension of our existence, many of us pretend to believe we're sinners. Consequently, all we can do is pretend to believe we've been forgiven. As a result, our whole spiritual life is pseudo-repentance and pseudo-bliss. And so as we're making our way towards the importance of repentance, Brennan Manning is teaching us here that if we don't first have real, genuine confession and the recognition that, yes, I am a sinner and I need the grace and mercy of God, if we don't realize that we have something to turn away from, we can't really ever actually repent. And so until we reach the point of being able to admit that we aren't right in the presence of God, we will never be able to arrive there. And rightness before God will always be beyond our grasp. And so this recognition of our position as sinners in the presence of an angry and holy and just God is so crucial to being able to stand rightly before him. But once we arrive there, once we recognize the depth of our accusation and the reality of our guilt, we find that there, in that moment, is where hope lives. And in that moment, we find the opportunity to settle out of court, to settle our debt and to put our accusations to rest. And so Jesus continues on teaching us about the importance of repentance as we approach chapter 13. But you may be here and you may be feeling one of two ways. I'm sure there's a thousand ways to feel as we talk about this, but let's talk about both sides of the gauntlet here. On one side, you may be feeling like, you know what? That's not me. I'm a pretty good person. I follow the rules. I've always followed the rules. I've been a rule follower every day of my life. I've gone to church my whole life. I live a very good life. I take care of other people. That's not me. I'm a pretty good person. I think I'm okay. And then on the other side, maybe you're here and you're saying, you know what? That is me. I am guilty. And I feel guilty every single day of my life. And I want to do better, but often I find myself not being able to do better. And I feel like all I ever do is mess up and mess up and mess up. And so I don't even feel like I have the option to settle any of this out of court. I know what I've done. I know who I am. And I'm just going to accept it. And that's going to be that. But if you find yourself on one end of that spectrum today, recognize that you're wrong. It doesn't matter if you're on the side where you feel like you're okay and you feel like everything is right and you don't need anything because you're righteous on your own, you're wrong. And if you feel like you're over here and you're too far gone and there's nothing that you can accomplish or there's no way that you could ever be rightly restored before God because of all you've done, you're wrong. And look at what Jesus says here in chapter 13. 
Some people came to him and they present the very time, <clears throat> excuse me, those who were present at that very time told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that those Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And so Jesus gets in the modern day news of things going on in the lives of the people, and he takes these two examples of people who died in very difficult circumstances. And again, during this time, just like in all times, it's easy for us to look at misfortune or or difficult times or periods of suffering and say that that is evidence that there is some kind of sin going on in your life. And so they look at these two horrific things that take place, and Jesus says, when you look at those things, you see people who are being punished by God, right? When you look at those Galileans, when you look at those people who were killed under the tower, it would be easy for you to look at them and say, well, they must have had something going on in their lives to make them a worse sinner than me. But Jesus says, that's not how this works. There is no degree to which God sees our sin. Yes, our sins sometimes have a variety of consequences, but every sin is enough to separate us from God. And Jesus is saying here with this again, that big, broad you, all of you are in trouble. All of you are on a pathway to this, whether it's under a tower, whether it's of old age. That's not the big deal. The big deal is what happens on the other side. And Jesus says, there is no better, there is no worse. The only cure to this is repentance. And so we see in Jesus' teaching here a twofold message. On one side, we see that there is no point beyond redemption. Because each and every one of us stands guilty before God. From the outside, these people could have been seen as more sinful. But Jesus, as he always does, levels the playing field. Because remember in Jesus' teaching about Lazarus and the rich man, Lazarus would have been a person who people would have walked by saying, I wonder if it was his sin or I wonder if it was his parents. I wonder what he did to put himself in this position. But then the man who sat outside the gates of the rich man found himself sitting by the side of Abraham. And so we see in these teachings that no matter what our circumstance or our past may say about us, there is no depth that makes us too far gone for Christ to reach us. And there is no wall that he can't break through to save us. And so we have to learn to see ourselves through the eyes of Christ. On those moments when we feel too far gone, on those moments when we feel like the Galileans or like the people who found themselves under that tower saying, God must be against me. I must be too far gone. I must be beyond redemption. We have to learn to see ourselves through the eyes of Christ who sees us all as sheep without a shepherd and has mercy and compassion on us. But that's not fair, right? That doesn't make sense in our minds that we would have this amazing gift of grace that no matter what we've done, no matter who we are, that God could just wipe that slate clean. How is something like this even possible? And that leads us to the second part of what Jesus is teaching us here. Because we look at the second half of the chapter, he says in both cases, no, there is no difference here. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. 
And again, about the tower in Siloam, he says, no, there's no difference here. But unless you repent, you are all going to likewise perish. And so now Jesus turns the table to the other side here and says, for all of you who think you're okay because your sin is less noticeable or your sin looks a little cleaner, you have to pay attention too. Because this isn't about what you've done. This isn't about what you think you've earned. This isn't about what you think you've accomplished. Because this rich man in Jesus' story would have looked like a very blessed man. He lived a life that everyone else would have wanted. And people probably walked by his house and they saw him in his clothes. And they would see the things and hear about the things that he would eat and the feast that he would have. And he would, they would say, this man must be blessed by God. But again, the gospel goes much more than skin deep. And Jesus says, it doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter what you think you've accomplished. It doesn't matter what you think you have to offer God. The only ability that we have to stand before God rightly comes through repentance. That's the only way that guilty, rebellious, hypocritical runaways can stand holy in the presence of our King. And repentance is one of those things, like most things in the gospel, that is at the same time painful and wonderful. It's painful because of what it requires of us. Because repentance is really more than saying we're sorry. Yes, confession, recognizing our sinfulness, and asking for forgiveness are a part of it, but there is so much more. Repentance, in its truest sense, is doing what Jesus has called us to do through this entire teachings about the kingdom of God, where we give up one kingdom for another where we find ourselves as people who are willing to die in order to truly live. When N.T. Wright talks about repentance, he says it this way. He says, when Jesus says, repent and believe in the good news, towards the beginning of his ministry in Mark chapter 1, there's almost an exact parallel to that in the Jewish writer Josephus. He, Josephus, talks about a time when he went to Galilee in the 60s of the first century, and he said to one of the brigand leaders, repent and believe in me. What Josephus was saying was, give up your way of doing stuff. I've got a better idea. Come with me. And that's what those words sounded like in Galilee in the first century. When Jesus told people to repent, he didn't mean have some kind of sad religious experience. He meant you're going the wrong way. You're going to have to turn around because God is doing a new thing. And if you're going to be a part of that new thing, you're going to have to give up the way you've been going. You see, the only way to stand right before our king is to fall on our knees, admit our failure, and then stand up, turn around, and walk away from our sin and walk towards Christ. Again, as Jesus calls the disciples in the early part of the Gospels, he doesn't call them and say, hey, you guys are doing bad things, you should stop it. But he goes to the disciples and he says, hey, come and follow after me. Leave behind the things that you have and follow after me. When the people, as we saw, were coming to try and follow Jesus, but the one man said, you know what? I've got work to attend to at home. Let me go tie up those loose ends and then I can come with you. Jesus says, you might as well stay home. Because this isn't about joining a movement. This isn't about simply getting forgiveness or get out of jail free card. But this is about a lifestyle. This is about a commitment. This is about an eternity of leaving behind the things that don't matter and following after me as I lead you to the things that last forever. Repentance 
is about turning away from the things that have held us in captivity our whole lives, from the sin and the shame and the brokenness, and walking towards Christ who brings us freedom. And that's not easy. It's a lot easier to say you're sorry. It's a lot easier to say, I'll do better next time. It's a lot easier to just ask for forgiveness every time that we fall. It's much more difficult to say the things that I used to hold dear, as Paul said, I count as loss. To say all these things that I valued, all these things that I found my ultimate importance in, I'm going to walk away from those things and I'm going to pursue you and follow you wherever you lead. And that is difficult and it is painful and sometimes it can feel a whole lot like death. But on the other side, we find that repentance is beautiful. Because what's amazing about repentance is that it's not some sort of secret thing somewhere off in the distance. It's not a secret knowledge that you have to spend years in a monastery to try to find. It's not some sort of indulgence that if you have enough money, you can go buy it and have your sins cleansed for you. Repentance is offered to all and is free to all. And this is how sinners, both great and small, are able to find the same salvation and to have the same standing before God. As Jesus teaches us that repentance is the only entrance point into the kingdom of God, he is reminding us also that there's no repayment. There's no negotiation. There's no community service that has to be accomplished. As we settle out of court, God doesn't say, okay, you can come into my kingdom, but here's the things you have to do first to make right everything you've done. God says, if you want to come into my kingdom, you turn around and you just follow what my son has already done for you. Your debt has already been paid. Your service has already been performed. It's all been done for you. All you have to do is follow the one who did it. And that's the gospel of Jesus. That's how it's free to every single one of us. Because God needs nothing from us. God doesn't have some sort of missing debt in his abundance of riches that we have to pay back first before we can come in. Jesus not only has enough to pay himself, but to pay for all of us and to be in our place. And that's exactly what he did through his death and his resurrection. He literally paid our debt in full. This forgiveness that we ask for for Christ isn't an emotional thing. It's a payment of a debt. And so when we come to God and when we confess our sins and when we do come to God seeking this forgiveness, when we come to God saying, I'm ready to leave behind the things that held me in bondage and walk towards you, he says, come on. It doesn't matter who you were. It doesn't matter what you've done. The grace and mercy of Christ is bigger and better. And so he welcomes us freely into his kingdom. Because repentance is simply accepting It's leaving behind the old and following Christ. And on the other side of repentance, what we find is acceptance. And there is maybe no more profound word than we can use when we're describing our place before God. Because we've said all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The New Testament is very harsh on us about who we are in the presence of God. It says that we are children of wrath and enemies of God. And yet simply through the work of Christ on the cross and our repentance, we're able to stand in the presence of God and to find acceptance. Not as servants, not as debtors whose score is evened up, but as sons and daughters 
on whom he lavishes his love and mercy and grace and kindness. And Tirite also points out that in the Old Testament, this word for repentance was often used to describe exiles coming home. And I love that picture, and we see that in, in the Old Testament story as the people of God are taken off into exile, and we see their joy as he brings them back, as we see the walls built, as we see the temple reconstructed, and the people worshiping God in their temple again. There is joy and overwhelming happiness because they feel as though they found again acceptance in the sight of God. And for those of us who trust in Christ and through that repentance enter into the kingdom of God, there is nothing more beautiful than the fact that God looks at us and all our baggage and all our junk and all our shame and all our guilt, and he looks at us and he says, I accept you. I don't tolerate you. I don't begrudgingly welcome you in. But he accepts us as a good father with his arms wide open. And so we have to recognize, as Jesus taught us, that time is growing short. And that for those of us living for another day to say, maybe I'll turn tomorrow, maybe I'll wait till next week, because this is kind of the thing we do with diets and everything else in our lives, maybe on Monday, right? Maybe I'll get this taken care of sometime later. Jesus is warning us here that there might not be a later that time is running short and that there is a judge who judges over heaven and earth and all of us, as of right now, stand guilty before him, but there is no one beyond redemption. And that all we need to come into the presence of God and to stand rightly before him is to settle this out of court by trusting in the grace and mercy of Jesus and repenting of our sin, turning away from our sin and following Christ. And so that call is open for all of us this morning. And so if you've never trusted in Christ for salvation before, then that is the gospel as simply and as plainly as I can put it, that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has made it possible for broken and weak sinners to become sons and daughters of God. And all we do is trust in Christ and walk away from the old and walk into the new. And so if you've never trusted in Christ for salvation before, if you've never been baptized before, then come and talk with me after the service about what it means to trust in Christ and what it means to be baptized and to walk in this new life. If you're here and you do trust in Christ and you have been saved by God's grace and mercy and you belong to his kingdom, then we are called to be people who live lives of repentance. When we trust in Christ, that salvation is a once and for all thing. We don't have to do anything over and over and over again that God promises that he who began a good work in us will complete it on the day of Christ Jesus. And if you are saved, you are saved indeed. And he is working that salvation in and through you. And one day he will complete it. But we have the daily responsibility to wake up every morning and to repent. To say, this is who I was. This is where I came from. These are the things that hold me in bondage. And those things are not going to hold me in bondage anymore because for freedom, Christ has set me free. And so today, I'm walking out of my bed and in the glorious light. Today, I am leaving this house and I am following Jesus everywhere that he leads. And I'm going to follow in his footsteps until the day when he makes me whole and makes me complete on the other side of the resurrection. We must be people of repentance because we get to wear the beautiful identity 
that one day when we stand before God, he is going to look at us not as enemies, not as children of wrath, not as someone who snuck in the back door, but as his children, as his sons and daughters. And he is going to, with open arms, accept us into the fullness of his kingdom and give us more than we could ever imagine. And so let's be people who live like that is true every single day never exchanging freedom for captivity, never exchanging the good things of Christ for the cheap things of the world. And so even if we find ourselves suffering our whole lives like Lazarus, we can be reminded that we have a beautiful hope in Christ that one day all the present sufferings of the world, all the shame and all the guilt will be washed away and we will be with him complete and whole forever. And so until that day, let's be people of repentance.